everyone. Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, where legends share legendary stories. This episode, In the Locker Room with Bob Lilly. We take a look at the life and career of NFL legend Bob Lilly. This episode of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast is presented by the Fairfield Inn and Suites, Waco North. Come visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco, Texas. And when you do, make sure you stay at the Fairfield Inn & Suites, Waco North. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, where legends share legendary stories. My name is Jackson Michael, author of The Game Before the Money. And this episode is in the locker room with Bob Lilly. Bob Lilly, recognized as one of the greatest defensive tackles in NFL history. He played his entire career with the Dallas Cowboys. He was the team's first ever draft pick. He was the first person initiated into the Cowboys' ring of honor as well. Lilly is so entrenched into Dallas Cowboy history that he's often referred to as Mr. Cowboy. He was inducted into the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in 1975. And each year, Bob hosts the Texas Sports Hall of Fame Celebrity Golf Tournament. The Pro Football Hall of Fame inducted Lilly in 1980, and he was just named to the NFL 100 All-Time Team. And we're excited to honor him today on the podcast. Bob Lilly grew up in Throckmorton, Texas, He says his earliest memories are surrounded by World War II, when most of the able-bodied men in Throckmorton had joined the armed forces. Lily remembers listening to the radio with his grandfather when he was about three years old. We had no TVs back then. TV didn't come to Throckmorton until about 1955. My granddad, he listened to the radio. He sat down there at 12 o'clock at noon, and it lasted an hour. And I sat down there with him from the time I was about three till the war was over. Throckmorton was primarily an agricultural community. Bob's grandfather had about 500 acres. Bob describes some of the work he did around the farm as a kid. My granddad was a, a small farmer and, and small rancher. He had a small place, four or 500 acres, and he raised cattle and he raised uh, wheat and he raised maize, which we call it, and he also raised uh, cotton occasionally. And so I learned how to pick cotton. I learned how to hoe cotton. I learned how to drive a tractor. My dad was also a custom farmer. So we had a bulldozer and we had uh, hay balers and we had combines and we had tractors and mowers and rakes and I mowed hay, raked up hay and my dad bailed it. I hauled it. Lily started playing football in the sixth grade. He eventually also got into other sports. Lily recalls for us his early sporting days in Throckmorton, Texas. Started playing football since spring of my sixth grade year, and I think we had 12 guys. We didn't play. He just taught us about football, and we learned how to tackle and block and so forth. And the next year, the seventh grade, we had a team. We played two or three other teams. Mainly, we just scrimmaged a little bit against our varsity. When I was a freshman in high school, I started in basketball, football, and learning a lot about track. We didn't have a real track. We had to kind of make it out of a road grader. We just left the mesquite trees in the middle. They dug a pit for the 
rod jump, put some sand down. We did have track shoes for the, some of the track events, but it didn't work on the just the dirt track, so we just wore football shoes. His work around the farm and oil rigs built his strength beyond that of the average teenager. I was pretty big by the end. I was about six foot two, six two and a half, maybe my freshman year. I weighed about 180 pounds. I'd been lifting hay bales and steel and iron and drill pipe for the oil rigs. I could pick up about 600 pounds up to my chest. Bob realized how strong he really was during his freshman year. He and his friends would fish for bass out of stock ponds on nearby ranches. And one of his friends had a car, and one day the boys got a flat tire on a fishing trip. But they had no jack to lift the car. Lily had an idea. And I told him, I said, you know, this car doesn't look any heavier than that winter ore I've been picking up. I broke the jack off of it, and I've been lifting it up and shifting rocks under it so I could back my tractor up and hitch it up. So he, we've got some rock, and we put there, and I picked the car up to just uh, above my tummy, and he put the rocks under it, and we changed the tire, and I never thought anything about it. But I got to school the next day, and the older guys were all trying to pick it up off the ground, and I think one or two of them got it off the ground. And I thought, I'm a freshman. Those guys are supposed to be stronger than that. <laughs> so anyway, that was just what you call natural strength that you get from farm work and picking up cows and hay bales and pipe and all that kind of stuff. Other than owning supernatural strength at a young age, a lot of Bob's early days were pretty standard for a small-town farm kid. Church on Sunday, alcohol-free canteen to hang out at, he described it as a protected environment. In the early 1950s, a severe drought hit Texas and lasted for several years. The drought stands as one of the worst in American history. Nearly 100,000 Texas ranches closed during the drought as ranchers sold off livestock, they left rural areas and moved to larger communities. During the drought, all except 10 of Texas's 254 counties were declared federal drought disaster areas. The drought affected the Lilly family. When Bob was in high school, his father moved the family to Pendleton, Oregon. Bob's dad eventually got a job with GM working on automatic transmissions. Bob recalls for us the drought, his father's concerns, and the move to Oregon. We did have a big drought starting in 1950 and lasted through 57. So our farming business went downhill. It, was, it wasn't quite as bad at first. It got worse. So we were doing more work building pads for drilling rigs to drill for oil and building a gravel road for them to get their equipment up there. And so we were bulldozing mesquite trees, which were a real headache out there because they soak up all the water. The government had a program to eliminate them, and my dad, that's one thing we did. I think it was about 55 or 56, the, the cheap oil from the Mideast started coming in. It was it was cheaper than we could produce it. We, we could foresee, Dad could, that we were going to starve to death. So they got on the phone and called kinfolks all over. We had a 53 V8 Baker four-door. We put what furniture we could get in there, and we gave the rest of it away. Bob continued playing high school football in Oregon. On Saturdays after games, He'd help his friends' families on their farms, bailing hay, mowing hay. Bob was offered football scholarships at Washington and Oregon. Lily's family didn't have a phone, but that didn't prevent a legendary coach at Texas A&M from attempting to reach Bob. 
we didn't have a phone at home. So Bear Bryant called the coach's office. But I'd heard a lot about him, and I was scared of him. <laughs> I didn't, so I didn't call him back. But I wanted to go to TCU. You can hear about Coach Bryant's fabled Junction Boys training camp in the Gene Stallings episode of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. TCU's football program used a different strategy to reach Lilly. Coach Abe Martin and his staff mailed Lilly a postcard. Lilly paid TCU a visit, and he signed on. I did drive that old skidbacker down to TCU and visited Coach Abe Martin and signed my intent to go to TCU and uh, drove back to Oregon. They gave me $150 for my expenses. Drove back to Pendleton, Oregon, which is 2,300 miles. The decision to attend school and play football at TCU placed Bob in the footsteps of a hero of Bob's father. Dad's hero was Sam Ball, but I've never seen I never saw him play, but he played at TCU and I got to meet Sam. I met him at two or three events. We actually went out to see him at near Rotan one time. I think we were in Snyder, but anyway that was quite a highlight for me. And going to TCU was a blast because it was a small school that when I went there, it was about under 4,000. Freshmen couldn't play varsity college football in those days, except under very rare circumstances. In 1958, Lilly played on varsity as a sophomore. TCU won the Southwest Conference and faced the Air Force Academy in the Cotton Bowl. The game ended in a scoreless tie. In 1959, TCU played Clemson in the first ever Blue Bonnet Bowl during Bob's junior season. Lilly had already made a name for himself going into his senior year. In the 1960 TCU Media Guide, TCU head coach Abe Martin called Lilly the best lineman he had ever coached. TCU's line coach Allie White doubled down on the praise, calling Lilly the best lineman TCU ever had, and added that Lilly's possibilities were endless. Gil Brandt, served as the vice president of player personnel for the Dallas Cowboys for nearly 30 years. He remembers Forrest the first time he scouted Bob Lilly. I think they were playing at Iowa, and uh, I, I saw a game there, and, uh, and you know he completely controlled the game. In Bob's senior season, the Horned Frogs finished at 500 and didn't make a bowl game. Lilly, however, collected consensus All-American honors. In my senior year, I had a, a really good year, even though we didn't have a very good team. And so I made All-American and got to go to New York about three or four times, playing a bunch of All-Star games with future NFLers. His experience as an All-American not only helped kickstart his NFL career, but it also launched a longtime interest in photography. Lily and Denny Freeman a former Associated Press editor who covered the Cowboys for over 30 years discussed Bob's start in photography. He was on the College Football All-America team in 1961, and it was sponsored by Kodak. And as part of that honor, they gave the players a camera and a year's supply of film. 200 rolls of film, 100 rolls black and white, 100 rolls of color, prepaid. We just took the pictures and sent them to Kodak, and they printed them and sent them back to us with the negatives. So anyway, that's how I got started, and I took that camera my first year, and I just kind of took candid shots of all kinds of things, teammates, airplane rides, all-star games. Lily's tremendous college career 
placed him high on both NFL and American Football League draft boards. The Dallas Cowboys selected Lilly in the first round of the 1961 NFL draft, making him the franchise's first ever draft choice. Gil Brandt talks about the Cowboys' first ever draft and the options they considered for their first selection. We actually came down to two players. One was E.J. Holub, who was a center linebacker from Texas Tech, and the other was Bob Lilly. And it was a, really a toss-up as to who we were going to select. We finally came down to thinking that the most important player uh, position on our team was that of a defensive end and tackle rather than a linebacker. So that's why we took Lilly over Holub. Although we did draft Holub in the second round, but he subsequently signed with the Dallas Texans. E.J. Holub signed with the Texans and also had an outstanding pro career, resulting in Holub being inducted into the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in 1982. The AFL's Dallas Texans also drafted Lilly in the second round of the AFL's draft. Lilly, who is drafted as a defensive end, tells us why he chose to sign with the Cowboys rather than the Texans. I was really torn between whether to go play with the Texans or the Cowboys. I went to talk to my coach, Coach Martin, Abe Martin at TCU, and we visited about what I should do. He said, well, if you want to stay in this part of the country, he said, my advice, if, if everything's equal, I, I think I would go with, with the NFL, with the Cowboys. So I chose the Cowboys, even though a lot of my buddies on the other Southwest Conference teams had chosen to go with the Texans. The Texans eventually moved to Kansas City to become today's Kansas City Chiefs. You can hear Bob Lilly talk more about his decision to choose the Cowboys over the Texans in the 2019 induction episode of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. In the 1960s, contract negotiations were much different than they are today. Gil Brandt remembers signing Bob Lilly after the East-West Shrine All-Star Game. And then I spent a lot of time with him when I signed him to his first contract out at the East-West game in Palo Alto, California. And one evening we went down to a little dining spot on El Camino Real, sat down there and hammered out our first contract. And he's been a cowboy or Mr. Cowboy ever since. Bob also played in the college All-Star game. This was a big event at the time and featured the reigning NFL champions against a team of college all-stars at Soldier Field in Chicago. Legendary NFL quarterback Otto Graham coached the college all-star team. Gil Brandt tells us this great story of Otto Graham pulling him aside to discuss Bob Lilly's future at the college all-star game. And Otto Graham came up to me and he said, Gil, where's your training camp? And I said, Minnesota. I said, why do you ask? He said, well, you can save some money, just send them right back to Dallas because he's never going to make your team. He's not going to make it the National Football League. So instead of bringing him to training camp and costing you money, just send him home. And I think that's the greatest story of all time. Thankfully, Brandt decided to forego Graham's advice. Lilly started at defensive end for the Cowboys in his rookie season of 1961. The team played their home games in the Cotton Bowl, a wonderful stadium to play in. Lilly recalls that the Cowboys' practice facility, however, left much to be desired. 
we practiced over in Oak Cliff at a condemned baseball stadium. It was called Burnett Park. I don't think anyone had played there in a while, but uh, we learned that we had to hang anything that had sweat on it or leather, hang them on the pipes that went through the building because the rats would come in at night and eat everything up that was leather or had sweat on it. We put rat poison out, and it seemed like they got bigger. The Cowboys were a new NFL franchise that struggled in Lilly's first years with the team. Lilly, however, played well enough to make his first Pro Bowl in only his second year in the league, while still at the defensive end position. Lilly tells of coming in the locker room at halftime at the Pro Bowl and being a bit surprised at the refreshments stocked in the team's cooler. I think it was a Coca-Cola icebox. Anyway, I went over to get a cold drink and I looked down in there, nothing but beer. Those guys were drinking beer, smoking cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, what in the world is this? I cannot believe they're drinking beer at halftime. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they didn't drink much beer, but it was funny. I mean, that was, that was a funny thing. That was the 1962 Pro Bowl. In 1963, the Cowboys continued to struggle and were on pace for another losing season. Going into week 11, a national tragedy struck in Dallas on November 22nd. President Kennedy was shot in Dealey Plaza and later died at Parkland Hospital. Bob remembers that fateful day for us and how the Cowboys players heard the news. I think it must have happened on Friday. We were going to catch a plane that afternoon to go to Cleveland to play the Cleveland Browns up in Cleveland. And, of course, we were all wishing that we could go down and watch the parade but we, we weren't going to be able to. And Jack Eskridge, our equipment manager, he always listened to the radio, and he came out and whispered something in Coach Landry's ear, and anyway, word got around to us that the president had been shot, and he was in the hospital, but he was still alive. That was the word at that time. But we, we finally heard that, and, and it really concerned us. I mean, it was a tragedy. Uh, especially when you're young and you're, you know, you've never experienced anything like that, and especially in your own town. And then uh, later in practice, Coach Landry called us all together. He told us that the president had died. And he said, right now our plans are to go to Cleveland and play, but we haven't heard anything from the commissioner. It was kind of like the wind was just sucked out of us. We, we really didn't. We didn't even have any desire to go play football, especially go somewhere where we didn't know what was going to happen to us. The league decided to play its regular schedule that weekend as the nation mourned the president's death. Lily tells us the players also dealt with the sadness and the games weren't as fiercely competitive. It was decided we were going to play, and I'm still not sure why we did, but we went to Cleveland, and the first thing that happened is the airplane people would not take our luggage off. We had to help load the truck to go to the hotel and then had to help load the truck to go to the stadium. And uh, the people at the hotel were not very friendly. In fact, they were not friendly at all. They weren't mean. Uh, nobody threatened us, but just a cold shoulder. And the next day, Coach Landry told us before the game, he said, that I advise you all to keep your helmet on during the game. And we had Parkers. He said, Keep your park on. You never know. I may be throwing something at us. Or, sure enough, we had a little of that. They didn't hit us, but I don't think the Cleveland Browns had their heart in the game either. 
they beat us that day, but it wasn't wasn't much, and it wasn't like anybody really wanted to play. And uh, anyway, I never really felt like that was a real game, but I still don't. I think we just went out there and went through the motions. But it was really sad, and it was kind of ruined our year. I mean, as far as, you know, here it was in Dallas and everywhere we went to play, headlines to have something nasty to say about Dallas. And uh, I don't think they talked about us too much, but it's kind of an insinuation. Bob says the tragic events in November 1963 affected the Cowboys that weekend and afterward. But the team regrouped with an influx of young talent guided by Coach Landry's leadership. It took us a long time to, to get over it. It took Bob Hayes coming to the team. It took us getting better. It took Roger, really. You know, we went from that low point of our careers to America's team. And that was all because of people like Roger and Bob and there were other Coach Landry, you know, just how he carried himself. And and so anyway, during my career, we became America's team, and it was totally changed. And it was changing prior to that. But it just was a stigma that, Seemed like it lasted a long time, but it probably lasted two or three years. The Dallas Cowboys also added future Hall of Famer Mel Renfro in the 1964 draft and defensive lineman Jethro Pugh in 1965. When we return, we'll dig into the Cowboys' rise to becoming one of the winningest franchises in NFL history and take an inside look at the Cowboys' first championship when we return to In the Locker Room with Bob Lilly on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by the Fairfield Inn and Suites Waco North location. This is Cliff Harris, free safety for the Dallas Cowboys. You're listening to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Enjoy it. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast, we invite you to visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco. The museum tells the story of some of the greatest athletes, coaches, and moments in Texas sports history by using objects from its collection, which numbers over 15,000. And when you come to Waco, be sure and stay at the Fairfield Inn and Suites Waco North, located just a short distance from the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. You'll start your day off with a delicious complimentary breakfast, and you'll also enjoy the Fairfield Inn and Suites free Wi-Fi, fitness center, and pool. And since the Fairfield Inn and Suites Waco North is an official hotel of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, you'll never know if you'll have a chance to meet a Texas Sports Hall of Fame member in the lobby. And now, Back to In the Locker Room with Bob Lilly on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Fairfield Inn & Suites Waco North location. The Cowboys finished second in their division in 1965 and played the Colts in what was called the Runner-Up Bowl or also known as the Playoff Bowl. The game wasn't really a playoff. Back then, only two teams made the playoffs. The divisional winners played in the league championship game, and the second-place teams played in the runner-up bowl. Lilly says the team started believing in itself during that 1965 season. 
We played in the runner-up bowl. We called it the loser's bowl because that's what everybody else called it. We played the Colts down in Miami. During that year, we finally figured out that we were a pretty good football team, that we just hadn't put it all together. So we really, we bore down. By that time, Coach Landry had moved Lilly from defensive end to defensive tackle. The move suited Lilly perfectly, and he made all-pro at defensive tackle six years in a row and a total of seven times over his career. Lilly remembers Coach Landry approaching him about playing defensive tackle rather than defensive end. He actually called me in and talked to me about it. And he said, I think you would make a really good defensive tackle, but what would you feel about the move? And I said, I'd love it. And he said, oh, you would? I said, yeah. I said, that's basically what I played at TCU because I played in the gap between the guard and tackle, and there was a lot more action in there than there was out there on the outside. He said, I think you'll be a perfect guy for the right side because we're playing the flex defense. And he said, I need a guy over there that's quick. Denny Freeman points out what Landry likely recognized in Lilly to make the change. Landry was uh, was a genius, a defensive genius. He invented a lot of the defensive moves that are still in vogue in the NFL. He saw Lilly as a tremendous uh, gap protector. Uh, Landry was big uh, of you hit your gaps and hold those. Coach Landry was indeed a defensive genius and innovator. The Cowboys started using computer analytics in the 1960s, long before laptops and tablets seen during today's NFL games were even invented. Bob Lilly and Gil Brandt discuss how the Cowboys started using computers in the 1960s to gain an edge. They were giving us printouts, but they would set up and grade all of them, and they would take all the film that they got of the team playing the other defenses, and they would put them all on the page and show what plays they ran, what down and distance it was, what part of the field they were in, what the score was, how many minutes were left in the quarter or the half, all these things that come into play. So you were very well educated on your strategy. We actually started a program in 1961, but didn't put it in place to 1962. What would happen is on Tuesday when he came in, he would have a printout available to him on down and distance, it would be first and ten, second and nine to six, third and five or less, short yardage, inside the 20, plays they ran on, on third and ten from the right hash mark. But more than anything, you got it on Tuesday. You could do the same thing by hand, but you probably wouldn't get it until Friday, and it wouldn't be as comprehensive. 1966 was a watershed year for Bob Lilly and the Dallas Cowboys. The team finished a sparkling 10-3-1 and won their first division title in franchise history. The division championship placed them in the NFL championship game against the Green Bay Packers. Even better, the game would be played in the Cotton Bowl. Excited Cowboy fans could experience the game in person. The 1966 NFL championship game brought together two head coaches who earlier worked together as assistant coaches for the New York Giants. Dallas's Tom Landry and Green Bay's Vince Lombardi. Lilly speaks of Landry's defensive brilliance and how deeply he and Lombardi studied the game together while in New York. He was a brilliant defensive tactician and had studied film with Lombardi. He and Lombardi coached together in New York for several years. Coach Lombardi was called the head offensive coach and Coach Landry was called the head defensive coach. And so they watched them together. He used to tell us about it. 
they went back as far as they could get film and watched it. And they figured out that there's only so many things you can do when you have your offense, these men lined up in certain positions. And so they had a name for every formation. The Cowboys met the Packers on January 1st, 1967 for the 1966 NFL Championship and the right to play in Super Bowl I. The Super Bowl got its name from Lamar Hunt, who founded both the Kansas City Chiefs and the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. The 1966 NFL Championship got off to a rough start for the Cowboys, as the Packers quickly posted a 14-0 lead. The resilient Cowboys battled back, however, and tied the game at 14 by the end of the first quarter on touchdown runs by Don Perkins and Dan Reeves. Reeves had led the NFL in touchdowns that year and gained over 1,300 yards from scrimmage as an all-purpose back. Reeves would finish with over 100 yards from scrimmage during the NFL championship game. Perkins would have over 100 yards rushing, and receiver Frank Clark totaled over 100 yards receiving. Despite those statistics, Green Bay held a fragile 34-27 lead in the waning moments of the game. Dallas quarterback Don Meredith drove the Cowboys downfield as Dallas knocked on the door for a game-tying touchdown in the final seconds. We were first down in one foot. Meredith got hit as he threw the ball and it was intercepted. Or we tied Green Bay and we could very easily beat them. Lily points out that although it was a hard luck finish to a hard-fought game, the result motivated the Cowboys the next season. That game kind of made us mad. Not the Packers, but just the game, the way it worked out. And so we really worked hard. Dallas won their second straight division title in 1967. They pounded the Cleveland Browns in a divisional playoff at the Cotton Bowl. That win created an NFL championship game rematch against the Packers, this time in Green Bay. Game day arrived, bringing with it a vicious cold front. The epic struggle between the Cowboys and Packers in sub-zero temperatures became one of the most famous games in NFL history known as the Ice Bowl. Bob talks about the fairly pleasant weather at practice the day before the game and how quickly the cold front moved in. The weather was only supposed to be 18 degrees, and they had that field with the pipe under it, warmed up, water running through it. We wore our sweats and maybe a little light jacket to practice, but it wasn't bad, and the turf was perfect. Miss Front was supposed to come in after the game was over. Supposed to come in about 5 or 6 o'clock. But the front came in at 7 in the morning. Teammate George Andre showed Bob just how cold it was at the team's hotel that morning. My teammate, George Andre, went to mass that morning. I was up, dressed, and we were ready to go eat. He just took a glass of water, and we were in a Holiday Inn outside of Green Bay, and he threw it on the window. About half the water froze before it hit the bottom. He said, it's already 9 degrees below zero and 35-mile-an-hour wind. The frigid conditions at Lambeau Field made everything difficult. Referees couldn't use whistles because the metal froze to their lips. Instead, they verbally called the end to plays. In the press box, coffee froze in the cups. In the locker rooms, players on both sides thought the game might be postponed. The game kicked off in the Arctic-like conditions, however, and, like the previous year, the Packers jumped out to a 14-0 lead. And... As in the 1966 championship, the Cowboys fought right back. Dallas defensive lineman Willie Towns 
forced Packer quarterback Bart Starr to fumble, and the Cowboys' George Andry ran the fumble back for a touchdown. By halftime, the Cowboys had closed the gap to 14-10. Dallas later took the lead early in the fourth quarter. Halfback Dan Reeves, who played quarterback at South Carolina in college, tossed a picture-perfect 50-yard touchdown to Lance Rensel on a halfback option play. And later, just like in 1966, the 1967 NFL Championship came down to the one-yard line in the game's final moments. This time, Green Bay needed to score. Bob recalls for us the field conditions at the end of the game. We got down again, end of the field where the pipe had broken and the water had come nearly to the surface and it was like ice. And we're trying to dig holes. I wish we'd just called time out and got a screwdriver and dug us some footholes. I think I would have been smart. I knew they had to come up the middle. And Jethro and I just needed one foothold. We just dug one inch down or an inch and a half for each of us. We could have held them. The Packers ultimately won with a late touchdown. The Cowboys had narrowly missed out on playing in the first two Super Bowls, literally by a yard each time. Despite the heartbreaking defeats, the team proved its elite status in the National Football League. The Cowboy defense was recognized as one of the best in pro football. The defense dominated opposing offenses so completely that it earned the nickname Doomsday Defense. Bob Lilly stood as its most recognizable force. Gil Brandt and Denny Freeman discuss what made Bob Lilly one of the greatest defensive tackles in pro football history. Well, first of all, he had size. He was 6'5", and, which was a big man in those days and still is, and had outstanding speed. He had very, very, very good short area quickness and very good natural strength. We didn't have strength programs like we have today. And also had athletic ability that was off the charts. Yeah, in fact, you know, he, uh, in his career, once intercepted a pass, uh, tipped it up to himself and ran it back for a touchdown. He had four or five defensive touchdowns where he would recover fumbles and run them in, and, you know, he was pretty fast for a lineman. Despite the suffocating doomsday defense and dangerous offense guided by Tom Landry's leadership, the Cowboys struggled in the playoffs. Dallas won their division again in 1968 and 1969, but couldn't convert those titles into playoff wins. They lost to the Cleveland Browns both seasons. During that period of time, a book about the Cowboys named Next Year's Champions came out. Many fans and writers called the team by that and other dubious titles. Uh, can't win the big one. Uh, next Year's Champions. Rides made to the NFL. 1970 marked the first season of the NFL-AFL merger. Going into that season, the Cowboys had made the playoffs four consecutive times. They won their fifth consecutive division title in 1970 and beat the Detroit Lions in a divisional playoff. The Cowboys then traveled to San Francisco and topped the 49ers in the first-ever NFC Championship game. The Cowboys met the Baltimore Colts in Miami's Orange Bowl for Super Bowl V. Dallas owned a 13-6 lead at halftime, but the Colts tied the game with a fourth-quarter touchdown. A late interception put the Colts in scoring range. The Colts kicked a field goal on the last play of the game to win 16-13. The Cowboys suffered another heartbreaking championship game loss in the final seconds. 
This was the third time that had happened in Lily's career. Bob flung his helmet high into the air after the game ended. I think the show of his competitiveness is that when we lost our first Super Bowl to Baltimore, when he came off the field after the last play, he threw his helmet about 50 yards, I think, in disgust. I was down on the sidelines when it happened at the end of the game. If they had a helmet toss in today's game, he would win it with that toss. The Super Bowl loss was exceptionally difficult for the entire team. In 1971, they would have to regroup and start the long climb towards the Super Bowl all over again. Midway through the 1971 season, the Cowboys moved from the Cotton Bowl into the newly built Texas Stadium. The Cowboys won their sixth straight division title in 1971. Bob earned All-Pro honors for the seventh time in his career as the Doomsday defense forced five turnovers or more in five games that year, including against Minnesota in the NFC Divisional Playoffs. After the Cowboys toppled Minnesota, the Cowboys again beat San Francisco in the NFC Championship game. That victory gave the Cowboys nine wins in a row. They looked for their 10th straight win in Super Bowl VI against the AFC champion Miami Dolphins. The Cowboys led 3-0 as the first quarter came to a close. The Dolphins lined up for a third down and long on the last play of the quarter, and Bob Lilly made Super Bowl history with a 29-yard sack of Dolphins quarterback and future Pro Football Hall of Famer Bob Greasy. Well, I think the play that describes his excellence more than anything is the trap of Greasy, the sack as we call it now, where he chased him around in the Super Bowl in New Orleans. The 1971 Super Bowl. Cowboys are playing Miami, and Bob Greasy was their great quarterback. Greasy fades back to pass, can't find his receiver. Then here comes Lilly, so he dodges this way and he still can't shake Lily, and then he dodges this way and keeps retreating and retreating, and finally Bob sacked him for a 29-yard loss. It's the most incredible sack, probably, in Super Bowl history. As of the conclusion of Super Bowl 53, that still stands as a record for the longest quarterback sack in Super Bowl history. The Cowboys led the Dolphins at halftime, 10-3 in Super Bowl VI. Bob Lilly and the rest of the Doomsday defense dominated the powerful Dolphin offense and shut them out in the second half. The Cowboys controlled the entire game and route to a convincing 24-3 victory. Lilly fills us in on how Dallas prepared for Miami and the Cowboys' defensive game plan that worked so well in Super Bowl VI. We were very serious about that game. We had lost the last year by three points to Baltimore. And we've been runners up and bridesmaids and all kinds of things for years. We've made up our mind after that game, we're going to win the next one. So here we are at the Super Bowl, and we have been watching literally 10 or 12 different films of Miami. I think every family had a whole year. We saw what they did against three-man lines, four threes. We saw what they did, and what they did is run over everybody. They had a great running game. So Coach Landry convinced us that the flex defenses can shut down any run. He said, you just have to be perfect. You have to do it right. And we did. Lilly adds that defensive backs Cornell Green and Mel Renfro played key roles in the Cowboys' pass defense. Our scheme on pass coverage was Cornell was a wild card and 
They had Paul Warfield, who was an outstanding receiver. So Mel Renfro was on him. Cornell was also on him. I mean, as far as he was always nearby. And he made some great plays. He tipped one ball that would have been a touchdown. He was a six foot five basketball player. He probably jumped about six foot off the ground and tipped the ball and it went just over Paul's hands. The Dallas Cowboys finally reached the end of a successful championship journey. All the pent-up disappointment the Cowboys had in close games and winning divisional titles only to fall in the playoffs melted away that Super Bowl Sunday at Tulane Stadium in New Orleans. We were elated after the game was over. Absolutely elated. and It was like lifting a 100-pound weight off all our backs we had been carrying around for a long time, and we finally got rid of it. And that was the beginning of more to come. And I remember how happy Bob was in the locker room. They threw Texture M in the shower, and they had carried Landry off on their shoulders, and Bob was smoking a big cigar in the in the locker room. I mean, I cannot even begin to tell you how we felt. At that point, it was probably the happiest day of my life, really, up to that point anyway. Coach Landry was all smiles. I mean, I'd never seen him smile so much. I mean, going to workouts from then after that was fun. We enjoyed it. We, we talked about different aspects of that game for two or three years. That was a big deal for us, huge. I'll never forget it. I can still smile about it. Bob retired three years later after his 14th season in the league. The Cowboys didn't make it back to the Super Bowl in his career, but they made the NFC Championship game in 1972 and 1973. Bob talks a little bit about the 1974 season and why he decided to retire afterwards. I actually played fairly well my first eight games of the 14th year, but then I got hit in the head real hard and it buckled. It probably compressed some of my discs below my neck. And so from that point on, the next four or five games, they had to shoot maybe eight or ten shots in overcame to go through practice. And the same thing with the game. I'd get it done before the game and at the halftime. I mean, I, I didn't play bad. Coach Landry said I graded out on the run, top, top lineman. And he wanted me to come back. He kept coming by the house. And anyway, it's probably the best thing I did. It doesn't bother me near as much now, but it's bothered me all my life since that time. And I'm sure I wouldn't have done it any good if I'd played another year. Bob retired with seven All-Pro honors to his credit. He also made the Pro Bowl 11 out of his 14 years. The accolades kept rolling in even after his retirement. Denny Freeman remembers Coach Landry's praise for Bob Lilly after Lilly hung up his cleats. Tom wasn't one to uh, hand out plaudits very easily. But Bob was a special one to him because Tom ran this flex defense and he counted on Lily being in the right place at the right time as basically the anchor for the defense. And uh, Lank Landry was quoted as saying, there'll never be another one like Bob Lilly. And that's how he felt about him. And of course, uh, everyone else felt the same way. The Dallas Cowboys made Bob Lilly the cornerstone of the team's ring of honor by making him the first person enshrined. Coach Tom Landry, General Manager Tex Schramm, and Cowboys owner Clint Murchison joined in the festivities. Bob recalls for us his induction into the Dallas Cowboys Ring of Honor. 
I was totally shocked about the Ring of Honor. I had no idea it was coming, and they called me up and told me they were going to have something at the stadium, and they wanted me to be there. They had my uniform. I, I had to put my uniform on. They had a convertible, and so then they rode me around. There was no talk of Ring of Honor or any of that. And then they took me out on the field, and there was Clint Merkson, Coach Landry, and Tex Ramp, and they were talking about my career. And anyway, finally they said, we're going to honor Bob today as a first member of our Cowboy Ring of Honor. They had the deal on the wall at number 74, but the rope wouldn't untie or something, so they had to get somebody up there to untie it and take it off. And then they took that off, and then they rubbed me around in the convertible, and I waved at everybody, and I'm kind of in shock. The Texas Sports Hall of Fame inducted Bob Lilly in 1975. He speaks about the Texas Sports Hall of Fame and what the honor means to him. To me, it was a place where I could take kids and grandkids and show them not just from my own little area, but others, and talk to them about them. And my oldest son still remembers that well. And I just think it's a fabulous venue for people to go to Waco and go to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame and just look at the history of the sports in Texas. It encompasses all sports, women's, men's, and get an idea of some of the great heroes that have come from long ago. It's really educational as well as kind of inspiring. Bob continued his passion for photography after his football career ended. He had a book of his photographs published called Bob Lilly Reflections. He says his teammates still comment about the photos he took of them with their kids during his playing days. And Bob still continues with photography today. He's even gone digital and uses Photoshop. Bob Lilly stands as one of the greatest defensive linemen in pro football history. The Pro Football Hall of Fame inducted him on his first year of eligibility in 1980. Recently, Bob was named to the NFL's all-time team as part of celebrating the NFL's 100th season. He was earlier named to the NFL's all-decade teams of both the 1960s and 1970s and named to the NFL's 75th anniversary team. He was the Dallas Cowboys' first-ever draft pick and earned his rightful nickname, Mr. Cowboy. Gil Brandt and Denny Freeman discussed the great Bob Lilly and his legacy. The thing that is most about Lilly is that he did it with class and humility. The only thing I can say is he is documented as maybe the greatest defensive player in Dallas Cowboys history. You can write that down, and I would subscribe to that since I covered every one of their Super Bowls, and I've seen all their players. Thank you for listening to In the Locker Room with Bob Lilly on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Presented by the Fairfield Inn & Suites Waco North. Be sure to subscribe to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast and visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco.